This is The Memo by Howard Marks. Today we debut a series called The Rewind, in which Howard looks back on some of his memos over the years, discusses their origin, and considers their relevance to today's financial environment. We begin with Howard's reflections on his very first memo, The Route to Performance, published on October 12, 1990. Here's Howard. Here we are. We just passed the 30th anniversary of the first memo on October the 12th. I'd be fooling both of us if I said I remember what made me do it. Look, I never intended to do this on a regular basis. This was one off. I didn't do the next memo until the next year. And I don't remember ever saying, you know, I'm going to periodically publish memos to the clients and that'll help our business or anything like that. It was just an interesting observation that I wanted to share. And so for many years, that's what we did and picked up. Maybe there wasn't one in 92, but maybe there were two in 93. And and then it gained some momentum. But in those early years, it was a matter of typing them out, running them off on the Xerox machine, folding them, putting them in envelopes, addressing the envelopes, sticking on a stamp and sending it out. Everything changed when the internet came along. We'd send it out by email and I would get responses from far off places and people to whom I hadn't sent it. I sent out a memo and shortly thereafter, I heard from somebody in Russia. We didn't have anybody on the list from Russia as far as we knew, but they do get passed around. So I I do, I hear from people in Africa and Latin America and Asia, and it's very exciting to know that I'm touching people around the world and maybe influencing them. Well, I'll never forget the first time that I put out a memo an hour later, I got a call or email from one of my best friends saying that a friend of his who wasn't even on our mailing list had sent it to him. So the world's a different place, communications wise, obviously, but we're enjoying being in circulation. The one thing you know is when you're in the electronic world, there's no such thing as keeping things to yourself. You send them to one person and it goes viral from there. So sometime, probably 15 years ago or so, we gave up on restricting it to clients and we put it on on our website. And of course, we've had a great response since then. I think there are over 100,000 subscribers now. For the first 10 years, I never had a response. Not only did nobody ever say it was a good memo, nobody ever said, I got it. In those days, 30 years ago, corresponding, communicating was such a different matter. For somebody to respond, they'd have to actually go to the trouble of making a phone call or or write me a letter, and it was probably too much trouble for people. So I never had a response. The interesting question is really what kept me going without any encouragement, but it seems I did. It gained the momentum later in the 90s. There came a point in time when I did them more often and got into a groove. What was one-off in the beginning became a, a habit. The most important thing, I think, is that I enjoyed it, and I find writing to be a good creative outlet, and I also find that it helps me think. Some of the things I write in the memos, I never thought before I sat down to write, but it comes out from carefully thinking about the subject matter. It has values for me, too. There's no one trigger, but there are a variety that seem to repeat, for example. Let's say there's a topic of general interest, like negative interest rates. I'll accumulate articles, 
cut them out of the paper or research reports and just put them on a pile. And eventually the pile gains critical mass and I'm ready to write the memo. Similarly, if you think about that first memo, I think it was just the coming together, the coincidence of of those two observations. One of the things that I respond to is uh, serendipity. I sometimes come across things that aren't obviously related, but I see a relationship or an analogy, and hopefully I can turn that into a meaningful memo. Then there are current developments that are so important that they demand attention, like the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers or the COVID pandemic. I don't really believe in proprietary information. I don't think I'm the only person in the world who understands the things that I write. And I don't think that the things I write can necessarily be used by the audience to make money directly. Maybe I like to think that I'm contributing to their education, but this is not a secret recipe. A friend of mine in England wrote a book about investing, and the title was Simple But Not Easy. And that's the way I view investing. The basic proposition is a simple one. You figure out what's going to be worth more in the future and how to position your capital for the future. And even to describe what you have to do in that process would be fairly simple. It's the implementation that counts. And no matter which proprietary methods you understand, you're not going to accomplish anything if you don't implement it with superior insight. So it's not like there's a machine that I'm sharing with people, which is going to make them great investors. There's no machine that will give you superior results as an investor in the absence of superior insight and superior execution. So I really don't think I'm giving away state secrets. I'm sure that there are professional investors who are reading them. I'm sure there are amateurs. I know there are a lot of young people and business school students. Now that I get a lot of response, it's really great for somebody to say, you know, you've influenced my investment philosophy, or I've built my investment philosophy around your books and memos, or something like that. You've influenced me in the development of my career. These are really great messages to receive. The first one was uh, two pages. The norm now is about 12. But as you know, there have been a few at 16. But you know, now I feel almost something of a responsibility. If I don't publish a memo for three months, I start getting emails, are you sick? So it's important. Of course, you know, this year, I think I've written 12 so far. The year's not over. And that's the all-time high. But I think that in a time like this, people need help. So as I say, now I feel a little responsibility having started it. I write them entirely on my own. It's really only when I have the polished draft that I start to circulate it. I have a small group of people at Oak Tree who are my insiders and three or four people, one of whom gives me great input on content. John Frank, who's our vice chairman, Rich Goldstein is an incredible proofreader. I'll write a memo and John, Nicole Adrian, who's another important contributor to the or commentator on the content. They give me their inputs and we clean it up and We think we're all done. And then I send it to Rich and he usually finds 50 little typos. And I always curse at him, but it's a great contribution. I would say that I mostly use this team to polish it. We get a lot of comments. 
they're mostly laudatory. There's nothing wrong with enjoying that. As I say, sometimes I get the one about, you changed my life, and you can imagine how great that feels. Once in a while, a complaint, especially if I venture into politics, people who don't agree with my leaning. I've only had one really, really uh, insulting one, but I probably deserved it. I think an important point is that these were never intended exclusively for the clients. There's another very important audience, and that's our employees. I consider myself the CCO at Oak Tree, the chief culture officer. And we are a culture-driven organization. We have an investment philosophy and a set of business principles which guide us that we consider to be of overweening importance. Writing about how we invest is an important part of reiterating that culture and making sure that it is really deeply understood. Risk control and consistency and non-reliance on forecasting and a high degree of specialization and being active only in less efficient markets. These are the core values of what we do. You have to constantly reinforce a culture if you want it to prevail. The great thing is that nobody at Oak Tree thinks that the way that they're going to get successful in life is by taking crazy shots in the hope that one goes in. Consistency and all the things I talked about in the route to performance more than 30 years ago, these are still values that we want to reinforce every day. As you know, the memo tells the story of one manager who, in trying to explain his way out of a really bad year, said, well, you know, if you want to be in the top 5% of money managers, you have to be willing to be in the bottom 5%. And my reaction was that I don't really care if I'm ever in the top 5%, and I certainly don't want to ever be in the bottom 5%. That, that's the opposite of what I and my clients are looking for. And then I had a dinner with the client who ran a pension fund. And that pension fund in his 14 years was never above the 27th percentile or below the 47th percentile. So it was solidly in the second quartile every year for 14 years in a row. Here's a fund that was just above the middle for 14 years in a row. But because it never had a bad year in which it gave it all back, it came out near the top for the total period. And I said, that's the way I want to work. That's what I aspire to. I guess I thought there was a great lesson in comparing these two approaches, and I named it the route to performance, because for me, that's my preferred approach. A little above average all the time. Now, we also aspire to be far above average in the bad times, but if you can do a little above average for many years and never have those really bad years that pull the average down, I think you can have a terrific outcome with the risks under control. I still think that you can't reliably and safely shoot for the top decile. Trying for the top decile requires really idiosyncratic behavior. Because obviously, if what you do has much in common with what everybody else does, you can't get into the top decile. You have to really do weird things and unconventional things. As I said in the memo, the things you do in trying to be different from everybody else and right exposes you to the possibility of being different from everybody else and wrong. 
when you're different from everybody else and wrong, it's not a great feeling. I always felt that our clients wanted to participate in our risk asset classes, but did not want the full risk and that they would rather be isolated from some of the risk. So I always thought that the idea of a whole bunch of good years and maybe an occasional great year, but with an absence of terrible years would be an absolute winning formula. And I think it's turned out that way. And now here's the route to performance by Howard Marks. We all seek investment performance, which is above average, but how to achieve it remains a major question. My views on the subject have come increasingly into focus as the years have gone by, and two events in late September, and especially their juxtaposition, made it even clearer how, and how not, to best pursue those superior results. First, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about a prominent money management firm's lagging performance. Its equity results were 1,840 basis points behind the S&P 500 for the 12 months through August. And as a result, its five-year performance had fallen behind the S&P as well. The president of the firm explained that its bold over and under weightings weren't wrong, just too early. Here is his explanation, with which I strongly disagree. If you want to be in the top 5% of money managers, you have to be willing to be in the bottom 5% too. The above calls to mind a convertible mutual fund I discussed in my second quarter 1988 letter to convertible clients. The fund held large amounts of common stock in the first eight months of 1987 and cash after that. As a result, its return was more than 1,600 basis points, better than the average convertible fund for the year, and 945 BP ahead of the second place fund. In the next half year, its tactics were equally divergent, but wrong this time, producing performance which was far enough behind to negate the majority of its 1987 achievement and pull its 18-month results well back into the pack. My observation at that time mirrored the fund manager quoted above, but from a negative viewpoint. In order to strive for performance, which is far different from the norm and better, you must do things which expose you to the possibility of being far different from the norm and worse. These cases illustrate that bold steps taken in pursuit of great performance can just as easily be wrong as right. Even worse, a combination of far above average and far below average years can lead to a long-term record which is characterized by volatility and mediocrity. As an alternative, I would like to cite the approach of a major Midwest pension plan whose director I spoke with last month. The return on the plan's equities over the last 14 years, under the direction of this man and his predecessors, has been way ahead of the S&P 500. He shared with me what he considered the key. We have never had a year below the 47th percentile over that period, or until 1990, above the 27th percentile. As a result, we are in the 4th percentile for the 14-year period as a whole. I feel strongly that attempting to achieve a superior long-term record by stringing together a run of top decile years is unlikely to succeed. Rather, striving to do a little better than average every year and through discipline to have highly superior relative results in bad times is less likely to produce extreme volatility, less likely to produce huge losses which can't be recouped, and most importantly, more likely to work. 
given the fact that all of us are only human. Simply put, what the pension fund's record tells me is that inequities, if you can avoid losers and losing years, the winners will take care of themselves. I believe most strongly that this holds true in my group's opportunistic niches as well, that the best foundation for above-average long-term performance is an absence of disasters. It is for this reason that a quest for consistency and protection, not single-year greatness, is a common thread underlying all of our investment products. In convertibles, we insist that our call on potential appreciation be accompanied by above-average resistance to declines. In high-yield bonds, we strive to raise our relative performance by avoiding credit losses, not by reaching for higher but more uncertain yields. In distressed company debt, we buy only where we believe our cost price is fully covered by asset values. There will always be cases and years in which, when all goes right, those who take on more risk will do better than we do. In the long run, however, I feel strongly that seeking relative performance, which is just a little bit above average on a consistent basis, with protection against poor absolute results in tough times, will prove more effective than swinging for the fences. October 12, 1990 Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Legal information and disclosures. This memorandum expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated, and such views are subject to change without notice. Oaktree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oaktree makes no representation, and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is the potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This memorandum is being made available for educational purposes only and should not be used for any other purpose. The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performances based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. Oaktree Capital Management, LP, Oaktree, believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. This memorandum, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oaktree. Audiation.